0: Welcome back to The Author Biz, where we gather together to chat about the non-craft parts of your author business. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and this is episode number 55. I'm leaving for vacation in a few hours after we record this interview, so we're going off format a bit today. I'm going to get right into introducing our guest, Michael J. Sullivan, and his wife slash business partner, Robin. Michael and Robin have recently raised in excess of $70,000 with a Kickstarter campaign for a new book that they're indie publishing later this year. As always, we'll have show notes for everything we discuss during the interview at theauthorbiz.com. This week's episode is brought to you by the Speculative Fiction Southeast 2015 Conference, otherwise known as SFSE 2015. From September 25th through the 27th, indie writers of speculative fiction will gather in Orlando, Florida to attend writers' workshops, panel discussions on craft, editing, indie publishing, and business and marketing for authors. Orson Scott Card and other top authors will be participating, and there will be opportunities for one-on-one feedback from established authors for your manuscripts. Lots of cool things, too, like contests, live-action role-play gaming masquerade balls and more it's going to be a lot of fun and a great chance to mingle with some top indie authors and to learn about what it takes to succeed in this new age of publishing go to www.sfse2015.com for information on events tickets and hotel reservations michael and robin welcome to the author biz Hi,
1: nice to be here.
0: It's a pleasure to chat with you, Michael. I have been following your work sort of as an indie pundit or a publishing pundit for years online. Uh, You're also an author. Can you give listeners a sense of all that you do and and what Robin does uh, with this partnership that you have?
1: Uh, Okay, so I started writing a long time ago and uh, I spent a little over a decade, I guess, trying to get into the business. Didn't do very well. And then I went away for it for a while. Rob and I actually uh, ran an advertising agency for about 12 years. Did very well with it. Kind of got tired of that because I was kind of doing the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got back into writing. And when I did, I realized that um, see, when I had the advertising agency, my wife, I hired her to be the president of my company because she's exceedingly good at the business end of things. So when I started writing again, I realized that the best way to get published was actually to enlist her to help me <laughs> on the business end once more. So she actually was the one who got me my first agent. And uh, later on, uh, when that fell through, because uh, my first agent uh, had some problems with her, her husband medically, so he, she kind of fell out of the business. So we ended up... Uh, trying to go the uh, self-publishing route originally. This didn't work so hot um, because this is uh, before uh, Kindle. And we just started to, to turn that, that faucet on. Robin learned how to do self-publishing. and We were just about to do that when we discovered we were picked up by a small <laughs> press. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an easy thing. Uh, so we started going through that. And then that company had some financial problems. And when they did, uh, we had the next book coming out in six months. We really couldn't go or try to go traditional at that point because they couldn't have turned it around in time. So my wife at that at that time actually kind of was able to employ all of her knowledge and skills and uh, got me going initially uh, or, well, built my fan base as a self-published author originally. Uh, we did very well with that. And then she decided it was time to see if we could get into the the, the big five uh, at the time, and we uh, did. We managed to get into New York, and that's kind of where we've been. And then re- most recently, what you're talking about, the Kickstarter, is when we, uh, after being successfully published, both in uh, small press and traditionally, uh, and self-publishing. We decided to go back to self-publishing again for my more recent works, which was a science fiction book, and this most recent one, which I had to get out, and I think my wife will probably tell you more about that. (laughs) But she's, like I said, she's my business partner. She's my chief of staff. She handles most of my promotions. And uh, go ahead, tell tell more.
0: Well, let me me jump in here with a quick interruption, because it sounds like you as an author have what every author wants, which is someone that can take care of all the details so that they can just focus on the writing. Is that is that a true statement?
1: Yeah, that's kind of neat that way, isn't it? Yeah, I've run into a number of people, and they keep wanting to know if they can actually, like— steal Robin away and have, have her work for them. They can be, no, no, you can't. She's mine. Um, yeah, she's the one person who allows me to do all that work. The, the thing that other people have maybe agents for, I have my wife for, because she inter- intervenes between me and the publisher and the agents and basically makes everything work very well. And I don't have to deal with it quite so much.
0: Okay, Robin. Uh, let's let's talk for a minute about this Kickstarter campaign and the idea behind it. Why did you decide to go this way? Uh, maybe give us a little background to this.
2: Yeah. So, um, as a person who visits Kickstarter and, and backs a lot of projects, because I, I really love the the Kickstarter paradigm and how it's really uh, it, it takes these really great projects and funds them. Um, I thought for a long time that it would be a good platform for authors as well, and in fact, there there were, we were at a couple of cons, and there were some authors that I, we were talking to, who they were traditionally published. They had you know fairly decent decent list careers. They had a fan base, and uh, I remember one guy telling me how, uh, you know, his new series, which he really loved, he really felt strongly about, uh, his agent couldn't find a publisher anywhere to pick it up. And I said, well, why don't you self-publish it? And he says, oh, I can't self-publish it. I, you know, I need money to do that. I don't have the money to do that. And I said, well, why don't you kickstart it? You have a fan base. It's, It seems like a reasonable thing. And he says, oh, no, kickstarters, uh, those are no good. They can't work, <laughs> you know. I, I, I'm totally against it. And I heard this then from yet another uh, traditionally published author. And that got me thinking that, you know, until I actually do something, I can't really you know, be in a a, a position of authority to say this is what you should do, this will work, until I try it myself. So the first Kickstarter we did, which was for um, Mike's science fiction novel, Hollow World, that was just an experiment just to see, you know, like, is it possible to Kickstart something? And we had very, very modest, uh, a very, very modest goal for that. It was, um, you know, we, we wanted to use the same professional's uh, for his self-published book, as he uses as his New York companies uh, use. Mm-hmm. So we had like uh, Mark Simonetti, who is a very famous artist. He's done covers for Michael and George R. R. Martin and Patrick Rothfuss and Brandon Sanderson and Terry Pratchett, just all the big names in the in the in the industry. So we wanted to use him. And we also wanted to enlist Betsy Mitchell, who had been an editor-in-chief at Del Rey for over a decade. And then we had two really good copy editors, um, one who had worked on several New York Times bestselling books and another one who had done uh, a lot of tie-in fiction for, like, the the Star Wars universe. And, you know, I kind of added up all their salaries, and I said, well, it's going to cost me about $6,000 to employ that caliber of people. And so I said, "Well, I'll run a Kickstarter for three thousand, um, figuring that like we'll chip in half, and we'll see if the readership will chip in half, and and then you know we'll we'll get it done." And uh, that Kickstarter uh, ended up raising about thirty three thousand dollars by the time everything <laughs> was said and done. Um, so about a thousand percent more than what we had thought. Mm-hmm. And then um, for this next project, I, I was pretty sure that. We could do another successful Kickstarter. I mean, going through it once, I thought it was it was pretty much an, uh, a done deal. But what I wanted to do, uh, which most self-published authors can't do, is I wanted to do a hardcover run. Um, and I wanted to have Mike's books in a bookstore's. Um, So that meant printing up 5,000 copies. It meant working with a distribution partner. It meant um, having warehousing space and and paying for warehousing space. And there just was a lot more expenses with that. And when I tallied everything up on that, including you know, kind of the, those same editors and the same cover artists and so forth, I think it came out to be about, I forget now, I think it was like $34,000, 35000 something like that. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I thought, well, that's just really, that's too much to go out asking for a Kickstarter, right? Because, you know, we, we did like 30000 before and, you know. So what I did was I said, well, we'll take care of all the editing And the cover design and all that, which was about I don't know, seven thousand dollars, something in that nature in that neighborhood. And then I figured, but the twenty-six thousand dollars that would be necessary for a hardcover print run, I'll kickstart that. And because I'm only covering the hardcover print run, if it doesn't successfully fund, well, I've already got the book, I already got the money for you know the cover design and all that type of stuff that was coming out of our funds. Mm-hmm. So the book would still come out either way. It was really just a matter of will it come out in hardcover, and um, and really to my great surprise, I because I was raising a, such a high amount of money, I figured it would take me the whole Kickstarter to fund that, and I think we we got past that twenty six thousand mark in the first forty eight hours. Um, which was just about, interestingly enough, is which is the same thing that happened with Hollow World. Ho- Hollow World uh, got past its funding level in the first, I don't know, it was less than a day, I think it was. So... You know, we were able to fund them very quickly, and then from that point on, it was just kind of fun because we could cut, kind of throw in all kinds of stuff um, that we wanted and the, and the readership wanted, you know, different perks that we couldn't have if it was just released through a bookstore, things like posters and comic books and, and some
0: bonus material and uh, T-shirts and things like that. All right. Let me ask uh, a question about both of these Kickstarters. Um, You achieved the goals so quickly. How did you let your reader base, fan base know uh, about this? Do you have a mailing list? Was it just a blog post on the website? How did you do it?
2: Yeah, well, well. Interesting enough, it's interesting because, like, in the beginning, you know, I had all these plans, like all these things I was going to do. And as the kickstarters went, I actually did not do nearly as much promotion as I probably could have. And I know that sounds a little bit odd because you say, "Well, why wouldn't you like keep going?" And, And a lot of it was because I'd already met my goals and I already had done what I needed to do. So. You know, it wasn't about like seeing how far up we could drive the sales. It was really more about, you know, I, I got the money I needed and, and so there's no reason to really push it. Now, early on, of course, when we first released it, um, yes, we had we do have a, a mailing list. Um, for the fi- first Kickstarter, I didn't use the mailing list at all just because <laughs> I didn't have it in really good shape. I mean, I've I have a tendency to collect up a lot of email addresses and then I don't do things with them which mm-hmm. is bad that is not <laughs> that is not the advice that I suggest for people but um for one reason or another that that just has been notoriously the the case um but for the second kickstarter I did use a mailing list uh, our mailing list that we'd been collecting over a, a number of years um you know we made blog posts one of the things that I did which I think also really helped was two things one is Before the Kickstarter went live when it was still in its planning stage is Mm -hmm. I made it available to a lot of people so they could like comment on it and talk about like some things that they would like to see and and things of that nature. So so there were there was a it's, it's not like we launched the Kickstarter on day one and that's the day the first day people heard about it. People have actually been talking about it and knowing it's coming for about a month before we actually launched it.
1: Yeah, I actually heard about it through Twitter. I kept seeing other people <laughs> talking about it. And I'm like, oh, so we're doing a, another Kickstarter.
2: Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of like, you know, did that to kind of uh, prime the pump, if you will. And then the other thing I did, um, which I didn't do on my first Kickstarter, but I thought this was a great idea. I'm sure I stole this from somebody, somebody's Kickstarter. Um, But I made, like, um, I made these reward levels that were exactly the same as the normal reward levels, except for there was, like, a 20% savings on them. And there were a limited number of them, you know, so that, like, the people who would get in the Kickstarter early... Would get, you know, like if, if the ebook was being sold at $10, you could get it at $8. Or for the hardcover, if it was at $35, you could get it at $28. And so that was an incentive for a lot of people to get into the Kickstarter very early because they wanted to get that extra discount. And so, you know, that, that gave it kind of that first
0: momentum going up the curve. All right, I'm going to ask a question about what you just said, because I noticed that on the Kickstarter. Uh, and let's, let's use the 28 versus 35 example, because that's mm-hmm. what's freshest in my mind. I don't remember exactly what it was, um, what, what the, I don't know, what's the term here? The reward. The, the reward level mm-hmm. was for that. But it was clear that you're getting a discount uh, for, for being in the first, I think it was 100.
2: Yeah, it, it, it's something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers. I think I did like a 100 on hardcovers, maybe 200 on the ebook. Um, you If I had the Kickstarter up in front of me, which I probably should have had for this, um, you could see the
0: numbers going down the side um, of, of what each one was. Right, and I will link to it in the show notes so that people could go and, and see what you did. But my question is, when you first launched the Kickstarter, did you have both options available, the... Twenty-eight dollar option and the thirty-five dollar option with the same reward.
2: I did, and interestingly enough, there was a, a surprisingly large number of people who chose the higher reward. I mean, the higher price, um, simply because they really enjoyed Michael's work and they mm-hmm. wanted to contribute more. So uh, it was really interesting to watch that in the early, you know, in the early hours, um, you know, even though there was the lower price point. Uh, version there people were opting for the higher version just because they they wanted to throw a little bit more support there there's also something that um it happened after the kickstarter <laughs> and it was really it <laughs> Must was <be> good <laughs> it was really weird so at one point in the kickstarter i had asked people you know like what reward what stretch goals they would like to see and and so we got things in there like uh that's how we got the uh, video diary of, of Mike's and um, a couple of other things that came in as, as part of the rewards. And at some point, someone said, you know, we would really like a reward level um, that if we get to a certain amount, like, we'll send Robin to a spa or give her some <laughs> sort of present or something. Because they they knew I was, you know, behind the scenes doing stuff. Uh-huh. And you know,
1: it was... and I knew darn well that I'd never give her any credit or, 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 or any presents, and That's I'd just right. keep her in a box, locked up.
2: That's right. So Mike did. He sent me to a spa for the day, and, and and all this. But the but the backer who had suggested said, no, we, the backers, want to give Robin something, and so he twisted my arm into. We, we, we use something called Backer Kit to do the fulfillment, which is this um, this great little tool where after people pledge their money. Um, it, it, it substitutes for the Kickstarter survey where you say, like, you know, how you want your book signed and where you want them sent and so forth. And one of the things you can have is add-ons. And so they, they could buy an extra book or they could buy a T-shirt or they could buy a poster. And, in fact, um, that kind of buying stuff after the fact aspect, the, the Kickstarter um, ended at, like, 73000 But we're at 90000 now because so many people bought some of that extra stuff, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that really surprised me is so we had this little item there called Tips for Robin. And uh, we got almost $1,000 in Tips for Robin. Um, so I am now going out to Kickstarter and finding all these things that I can buy with my tips so that I have <laughs> some personal <laughs> mementos from the uh, from the backers
0: just for me. That is awesome. Now, I I think there may be a sense from listeners, there are probably two ways. They're listening to this and thinking, A, you guys have this enormous fan base, and you have this enormous mailing list, and that's why this worked. And B, it's the Kickstarter platform, and the Kickstarter platform does everything. I'm assuming that it's, it's not either of those. It's a combination of the two.
2: It really is. I mean, for our first Kickstarter, the the uh, Hollow World Kickstarter, more than half the people who backed the project never had heard of Michael before at all. They just first time readers to to him because I because I, I had some uh, I had some demographic questions in in my survey, and uh, so there was a lot of that. Um, I haven't actually tallied out uh, what it is for Raiya. I suspect that number is going to be. Uh, less in other words there's going to be more of his existing fan base simply because hollow world was a brand new book for michael it didn't have any um past history to it where the second kickstarter was for the third book in a series so obviously a lot of the backers there you know are already invested in the series and they came because of that Uh, i do think you need to have some
1: it's not exactly it's not a thing you want to do if you have absolutely
2: no... No, yeah.
1: If if you're unknown entirely, this is the first Mm -hmm. book you are ever put out. Kickstarter is probably not your first option. It would be a really hard sell you'd have to do a fantastic job. And I I think what you're saying is that, can you just throw a project up there and expect it to be successful, and Kickstarter will do everything for you, or your fan base will do everything for you. Um, Fan base is important. You have to have the demonstration that you know what you're doing. You're gonna be able to deliver the product. If you have a fan base, if you have a track record, that's a lot easier to do. But if, you know, you just can't throw it up there and expect it's going to work. Now, Robin does do a lot of work, but most of her work is done prior to the yeah, launch prior. of the Kickstarter, yeah. she sets the thing up. She makes it very clear. Anyone looking at the Kickstarter project can instantly za- see exactly what they're, what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what you will get if you, if you, you know, join it. But it isn't a matter of that. You know, if I was an unknown author, I could just walk up here and get funded. That's not going to happen. So mm-hmm. this is something that we discovered is really great. If you're a uh, uh, a traditionally published author say whose whose third book in a in a series was not picked up, and you need the funds to finish it. You have some you know track records. That kind of thing can really be helpful. But. Oh,
2: or if you're self published and you have an audience, uh, you know, like I have backed a couple of I backed a couple of projects where like uh, you know it was a self published author who had um, they they had just e books and they wanted to do a print run of their mm-hmm. books. They wanted to see their books in 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 paperback. And, uh, you know, I funded those Kickstarters, and, you know, they did very well. So I, I think you have to have some audience, but you also have to have a, a well-constructed Kickstarter. And at some point here when I'm not, like, completely swamped, I am going to write uh, a Kickstarter primer, and I'm going to be giving it away for free. Uh, and, in fact, I'll give, you, I'll give you the address in the show notes because I have a little uh, form where people can sign up for it so that when I do write it, they can get a copy oh, of it. Oh, that's
0: terrific. Thank you.
2: Yeah, um, but it's very important to have the right reward levels. Um, you know, for us, neither of, our, neither of our Kickstarters were really so much about raising money because when push came to shove, we would be okay without them. In other words, if we didn't get that money for Hollow World, we would have we just taken money out of the bank and we would have done it ourselves. It's not like the project wouldn't have existed if we didn't have the Kickstarter. Now, in the case of the death of Dualgath. Um, yeah, we wouldn't have had hard covers because I'm not going to take $30,000 out for hard covers, um, but the books would have still existed. For us, it's more about a promotional activity because we're really generating pre-release buzz about mm-hmm. these products, and we're also getting the backers things that they couldn't get if we had just and only released through the bookstore. The other thing to keep in mind is you know, when we release through the bookstores, you know, depending on the, the, the format, we're losing somewhere between 30 to 70% to the retail chain, you know, right off the get go. Mm -hmm. And the Kickstarter fees are very small. They're only 5% and and a little credit card processing fee. So all that money comes to us. So when people back through a Kickstarter, a, a much higher percentage of their money is coming to the author than, you know, kind of all the other fish that kind of nibble away at, at the book's overall cost. So um, that's a huge advantage. It's,
1: a, it's interesting that when people talk about Kickstarter, they seem to think of it as a way of going about begging for money. And if you don't get the money, well, then this project doesn't get launched. And that may be the case for if you're doing, say, a game or you're doing a movie or something major like that that requires an enormous amount of funding. But if you're writing a book, for the most part, you don't really need much to promote or, or to produce a book. Uh, so the, for us, it wasn't a matter of trying to you know, get cash in or it doesn't work. With us, I mean, I already had the books written in in both of these cases. Uh, I was finishing up uh, this book, this last one, as the the Kickstarter was winding down. So it wasn't a matter of the book wasn't going to be produced. It was just a matter of this is a great way for people who can basically pre-order their books online. Um, And you can also, like she was saying, you can get additional uh, buy-ins as far as… Yeah, little perks that
2: you wouldn't get if you didn't pre-order it. So if you look at our levels, you know like when we when we do the kickstarters and both kickstarters, the levels are pretty similar. Um you know they're priced about what you would pay for the book when mm-hmm. it's finally released. So the ebooks are about $10 and the and the trade paperbacks are $15 and the uh hardcovers are um are $25. So they're they're priced about what people would get anyways. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I did. Bu- I bundled the ebook with the print book, so the, the trade paperback was actually $25 because you got the print book and the ebook. But the bottom line is is they're getting about the same prices that they would get normally. Um, the, a lot of the Kickstarters that, I mean, like I said, I back a lot of Kickstarters, but the ones that I won't back is when I just see these rewards that are really kind of out of sync with what I would like to be seeing. I mean, I remember one Kickstarter I was looking at where I was interested in the book, but the, the, the reward level, they had a whole bunch of small rewards at a certain level where you got things like postcards and this, that. But to physically get any copy of the book, a, a real-life version of the book, you had to be at $50. And I'm like, well, and that was for the ebook. And I'm mm-hmm. like, Ugh, I'm not going to pay $50 to read the book. You know, you you've priced yourself – out of my comfort level, so so setting up your reward levels, I think is very important, and I highly suggest people to steal my reward levels. <laughs> yes,
0: absolutely. Yes.
2: You know, because because I know those work.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then I think the other thing that's important is the stretch goals, and a having stretch goals that are far enough out that you know it takes you a couple days to hit them, but they're achievable. You don't want to have a stretch goal, you know, like if if you're if you're funding at twenty six thousand. You know you don't want your first stretch goal to be at fifty thousand. you know that just' doesn't, doesn't make sense. You got to kind of scale it appropriately and you, and so what I suggest is put out maybe one or two stretch goals at the beginning of your project. But then as you see how money's coming in, then throw out your other stretch goals and make them aggressive but obtainable because I because I think what happens then is people who are already very invested in the project because they like it, they'll go, ooh, you know, I really want that stretch goal thing. So they'll tell their friends, you know, Mm -hmm. to to join on because they want to get up to those stretch goals. And I think the stretch goals are really important to kind of, uh, you know, getting people to to the various uh,
0: levels. Now, I'm a sports fan, and Mm -hmm. I like to make comparisons or or draw analogies to baseball just because it's the way I am. And it's – It's occurred to me that, as a baseball fan, I can go across the alley. I live in Florida, and I can see the Marlins. I can pay as little as $3 and see the Marlins, or I could pay $1,000 and see the Marlins. I get to Uh see the same game. I, I just pay a different amount, and I have a slightly different experience. And that's one thing that, as authors, it's very difficult to achieve, but you're sort of achieving that with with all of these different levels you've got things for for fans for super fans for super duper duper fans that want a very small run limited edition hardcover exactly. of the yep. book and this just seems like an absolutely brilliant distribution channel to me and that's why she gets the tips
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's why i make the big bucks yeah i mean you you do need to have you know, you do need to have something for kind of those those upper fans, you know, yes. the, the people who are willing to pay the $1,000 seats. Mm-hmm. Now, I've seen some Kickstarters, you know, where they'll be like, and and I'm not saying people shouldn't do this, but they'll say, you know, like, at a $1,000 level, you know, you can have dinner with me. Now, I can't justify, you know, like, giving us a... I mean, we would go to dinner with fans just if they said, you know, hey, let's go to dinner. (laughs) We have. (laughs) And we have. So I can't justify... I personally can't justify asking someone, you know... To spend a thousand dollars to spend some time with me, uh, and Michael,
1: but um, you know, yeah, I, yeah, just consider how much you're paying us right now.
0: <laughs>
1: That's right, <laughs> and, and double it.
2: <laughs> so, so, but you do have to you do have to have some things at the upper levels, and limited editions is a great way of doing it because those people know, you know, that there's only going to be a hundred of those mm-hmm. those style of books ever made. You know, period. That's all there are, and they know that they are one of the very few people who get. You know that that which to me is still kind of strange
1: because I'm still trying to figure out why in the heck anyone would really want a book by me, thinking that it's going to be special <laughs> or something. <laughs> Apparently, there are a few.
0: Yeah, there, there's enough that it makes it worthwhile. There's something I want to get into, and we'll save it for the end. But, M- Michael, you wrote a blog post about a, a conference that you were at at the beginning of, of August uh, with, the, with a, a great story that, about you and Robin at the, uh, at the conference, and I really want to get into that at the end. But we'll save it for the end because it's one of those life of an author kind of things that just really brought a smile to my face. Um, let's talk about hardcover books for a bit. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of running hardcover books, there are, I don't know, roughly eight zillion authors in the position of thinking, well, I might have to self-publish my next book, and I want to be able to have hardcover books because I have fans who are used to buying hardcover books. I'd like to be able to get these books into bookstores. How do you actually do that? It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm going to print 5,000 books. It's right. another thing to get distribution for them. How do you, A, how do you pick a printer, get a good price, and I guess that's A, one A and one B, and then B, get distribution.
2: Yeah, so um, let me preface this by saying I'm hoping we're going to have good distribution. I mean, I've, I've chosen some partners, and mm-hmm. I've chosen them in a way that I think that I, I will be able to get on bookstore shelves, but you never know until it happens. I mean, and, and that's the same with traditional publishers, too. Like, you know, uh, you know we'll look in, you know— We're always kind of looking to see, like, where all the various authors are and and what publishers are getting. You know, there's something called co-op space, which is getting your books on a special table or getting them, you know, face out uh, in a certain section. So you never really know, you know, until it happens. So, uh, unfortunately, it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg thing for Michael I think it's it's a, it's easier because he already has traditional books that are regularly stocked on the shelves so when a new book comes out his chances of getting shelf space are higher than if you know he was a, a brand new self-published author and no one knew about him and it, it it just is harder to get that shelf space because shelf space is very, very limited at this time. So, again, for someone brand new starting out, I don't know how easy that will be.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of authors out there who have award-winning books, books that you know have sold well in the past that they're not there anymore. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I know... I know authors, so I check what's on their shelves, and I know they're missing books. I'm like, oh, so that one, you know, fell below the line that was lucrative enough to keep them there.
2: Yeah, so so it, so you know, it's it's a very much of a chicken and the egg situation. Is if you if your books are selling, then you'll have the shelf space. If your books start to slide, they'll be taken off the shelf space. Um, now, as far as printers are concerned, uh, two different things. So for Hollow World, we actually did have hardcovers. But only for the Kickstarter. In other words, the people who backed the Kickstarter, we had several editions of the hardcover that they could get. But for that one, I only printed up however many copies that the Kickstarter, um, you know, people bought through the Kickstarter. And I used a company called, and this is going to sound really one, but it's Book 1-1. One one, and that's book the number one, and then the number one spelled out. So numeral okay. one, and then O N E. And what they were really good about is they essentially do short run hardcover print runs at a fairly decent uh, rate, much higher than a than a you know if you did a five thousand print run, but at a, at a really good rate. The um, the other. Company that does do hardcovers, a little bit more expensive, is Lulu, which is most people would know them from self-publishing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but they do have a hardcover option, and the nice thing about their hardcover option is it doesn't have a setup fee. Um, so I've done hardcovers through them in the past. Um, the The Kickstarter itself for the for the first book was significant enough that I needed several hundred books, and at that several hundred book quantity. Book one one was cheaper than Lulu was, so I went with them, and so I got some significant savings there. But then, when you get into the higher, you know, price range, you know, like if you're going to do thousand books or two thousand books, or in my case, five thousand books, um, really, what you got to do is educate yourself on 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 different printing uh, options. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, you know, there's, you know, whether you want like a leather cover or do you want a, some, There's something called rainbow paper. Um, or whether you want um, you know what thickness of pages you want inside do you want a dust jacket do you want it case wrapped i mean you can you can cut, there's a lot of sites online that if you just look up book binding
0: mm-hmm.
2: you'll learn a lot of the terminology you know about like like the the dust jacket you know what is the difference between a dust jacket and a case jacket a dust jacket is that that removable thing that comes off the book and you could actually take it off separately where a case jacket is actually glued to the book, kind of like textbooks. A lot of textbooks are Mm -hmm. case-wrapped. So you've got to kind of familiarize yourself with the options that are available. And then you contact... I just type in, you know, hardcover prints, print books, and I started getting names of, of printers. And then I gave each one of them the same specifications. You know, I want 5,000 books. This is the page number of the books. This is the interior cover I want. This is what I want for the exterior cover. And just have them quoted out. Um, A couple companies that I ran across in the process that I think are really good, uh, one is uh, signature, Signature Printing, and I believe that they are in Michigan, I think I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure they're in Michigan. Um that's that's one of the ones that I that I was um, chosen to go with. The other one, oh, who is it? That I had really good I I will look it up to you and I will I'll send you an email afterwards so you can okay. put, it in
0: we'll your put show in the show notes. notes. Now, qu- um, quick question for you. If yeah. I if I went to the bookstore and I saw Traditionally published versions of the earlier books in the series and this new book. Would I notice a difference in terms of the print quality? Nope. Nope, you would not. Okay. Not at all. Yeah.
2: I mean, because we're using the same type of printers that the other people would use. And in fact, um, unless you were very, very skilled, um, printing comes in two types, print-on-demand and offset runs. Uh, well, there's actually three because there's a web press run. Um, that's usually done for very high, high qu- quantities of like mass market paperbacks. But in general, you're talking about offset and print on demand. Print on demand, mm-hmm. um, for for lack of a better word, it's it's basically like a Xerox. The the, the pages are toner.
0: Right, They're the toner yeah, the,
2: on paper. It's not,
0: okay, but it's not great.
2: That's right. So if you knew a lot about printing, I mean, if you put a if you put a loop on it, you could tell that it was a it's not ink that, you know, it's, um, it's done differently. Um, but the process that we're talking about when you're going through a, a offset print run is the exact same type of companies
0: that the publishers are using and and they're indistinguishable between the two. Okay. And from, I got this from the Kickstarter campaign. It looked like your original budget for 5,000 hardcover books was just under 15,000. So around $3 a books at that mm-hmm. level. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah.
2: And that's uh, uh actually I think the, the the actual amount came out to be about 250 a book but then there was like 50 cents a book I was accounting for with warehousing and shipping to and from the various places um you know first shipping from uh you know the printer to the warehouse and then the warehouse to the either Amazon or Barnes and Noble or where they have to go to because there's there's some additional costs involved in that so uh I kind of factored in you know both things, but I think it, it, so. Now, interestingly enough, the Kickstarter funded so well that the the trade paperback, which originally, when I started the Kickstarter, I was going to do print on demand. Mm-hmm. We got enough money so I can do a print run of that one as well. So the really interesting thing that we're doing is when you look at the interior of the book, we're actually doing a run of ten thousand six hundred of the interior. And then 5,000 of those will be with a trade paperback cover. 5,000 of those will be with a hardcover, regular hardcover. Then 500 will be with a special hardcover. And then 100 of those will be with a
0: really, really special hardcover, <laughs> where there will be leather. Those um, are the $1,000 seats. It's a baseball game.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, I think it was 150 on the on the Kickstarter, but yeah, those, those are more expensive. So what that allowed me to do, if you now look at my per-book book print run my my per book cost is now down to $2 uh, a book because i'm doing a, a print run of 10,000 and and the difference between running like a 5,000 and 10,000 uh it's not double you know it's you know it went from like 250 a book to $2 a book um so uh if you can get your quantities up higher and just be a little creative on how you bind them afterwards. Then you can get some additional cost savings. Because when you're talking about an offset print run, it's all about quantity. And, you know, if, if I were to print those at 1000 it would probably run me about four fifty a book. But at 10000 I can get them for about $2 a book.
1: Did I mention that she's good at business?
0: <laughs> and good at math, it sounds like.
1: See, this is exactly the kind of thing that authors like me always love to do, but I decided to let her do it because
0: she gets a kick out of it. <laughs> that's yeah, right. right, right, because that's exactly the kind of thing that authors I, like you like to do.
2: <laughs> I like spreadsheets. What can I say?
0: Now, obviously, you're using the same printer for all of this, so it's not like yes. you're using one printer for the for the trade paperbacks, another, and you're, you're gaining some, some real cost efficiencies by doing yes, that. Exactly. Okay. Um, one of the rewards that you offered, and I'm assuming that while this reward was, was being produced that you were at the spa, but th- one of the rewards was a critique by Michael. And well, yeah. I, that's obviously something that's got to be limited because there's only so much time in the day. Um, when you negotiated with him about, The number of those, uh, how did that go? What what (laughs) negotiation?
2: There's no negotiation. I know about how long it would take him to do one, Uh and I know, um, and I know about how much my time I can steal from him before he will start beating me. And uh, I I made the estimate based off of that. So it it just a lot of it has to do with knowing Mike
0: for a very long time. She
1: basically has a concept of asking for forgiveness uh-huh. and permission.
0: <laughs> yes. And that's how married people can work together. <laughs> that's right. That's
2: right. I, right. I know I know where my boundaries are and I don't I don't push past them, but I know where
0: I can go up to them. You mentioned BackerKit earlier. Can yeah. you share all the different things BackerKit does on the back end to help you uh, with this?
2: Yeah. So so first, huge BackerKit supporter uh I love it. Um, I first ran into it when some of the Kickstarters that I was pledging to started using them. Um, And, for instance, uh, Reading Rainbow uh, did theirs. And it was really cool because, um, because one of the biggest advantages it has is the ability for you to buy additional things. Because, you know, as part of the Kickstarter... As the, the pledge levels come up, you, you start introducing more and more things, and you say, hey, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we had a T-shirt? And you say, oh, yeah, that'd be cool, and what if we had a poster? Now, my first Kickstarter, I didn't know about backer kit, and my, my tendency was is every time I did a stretch goal, I kind of threw in these things for free. I said, like, well, everyone can have a poster. And then I found out, like, not everyone wants a poster. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Kickstarter, I actually, I, there was a fair amount of logistics time for me figuring out, like, who wanted them and who didn't, because if they didn't want it, then why should I spend the time, you know, the, the money to, to mail it to them, right? So when I started learning about Backerkit, one of the really nice things it does is it allows you to have add-ons. So if you can say, well, okay, so at the $25 pledge level, you're getting uh, a trade paperback printed book you're getting the ebook you're getting some bookmarks and you're getting a postcard and that's kind of your reward level but then you can say well if you want a poster add an extra $6 to your pledge and you can have a poster. Or if you want a T-shirt, add an extra $16 to your pledge and you can get a T-shirt. And so it allows you to kind of come up with all these kind of fancy other things that you can do. And what and there's actually two ways people can do it. One way is if you let them know ahead of time, if you have like an add-on section in your Kickstarter, they'll just add that money when they're doing the Kickstarter, you know they'll say, "Okay, well, I pledge thirty-one dollars because I want the twenty-five-dollar reward level, and I'm going to kick in an extra six dollars for, um, you know, a poster." Okay. And then, and then what happens is is they all get at the end of this at the end of the the Kickstarter, they get an invitation to BackerKit and BackerKit is a um, program by which it's a self-service portal. So one of the really cool things is, the most important thing to me was, is it keeps, it allows people to update their addresses, which Oh, gosh, a, yes. Oh, <laughs> Kickstarters, try to keep track of everyone else, because they're like, I'm going to school in in September. Will, you, will the stuff be shipping by then? And if they are, this is my new address. And you know and, and it was just, I had all these spreadsheets with everyone's addresses on them, and it was, it was a real pain. Well, this self-service portal means that, you know, right up in until the time I start shipping. So, you know, if I start shipping November 1st, you know, I can send an update and say, okay guys, I'm about to start shipping, make sure all your addresses are up to date. And they can go do that themselves. They don't have to write me an email and I don't have to copy and paste that into a spreadsheet and hope I get it right and have all that, that headache. But the other thing it allows me to do is after the Kickstarter is over, people start seeing all this cool stuff and they go, oh, you know what? I really do want that t-shirt. So, they add on the T-shirt, mm-hmm. and even though they don't have enough money in their pledge to do it, um, they can put in their credit card then, and BackerKit will will credit their their credit card for that amount. Or if they calculated something wrong, the BackerKit will straighten out. Like for instance, sometimes people will choose a reward level, and they'll 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 get like the free U.S. shipping, and then you suddenly get the address, and you find out they're in Canada. Well. You know, they needed to Canada. And when the Kickstarter is over, then you're kind of having to chase those people for that extra $15 because mm-hmm. they did their pledge wrong. But with Backerkit, they kind of can't do that because as soon as they put their address in, Backerkit knows, oh, this person's $15 short on their pledge. So they are telling them, you know, through their system to to give them that extra $15. So they're, they're kind of chasing your people for you. The other thing that they do along those lines is in when you get through with a um, Kickstarter, um, when the Kickstarter ends, Kickstarter goes through and starts charging everyone's credit cards for for their amounts, and some credit cards will fail either, you know, either they expired or they had the wrong address with them or for whatever reason, it, the credit card doesn't charge, and again. Kickstarter will kind of chase those down for you for a while. For a couple weeks, they'll kind of like, they'll kind of bird dog those for you. But Backerkit also does that. So, so you know, I think at the time that the Kickstarter ended, I had like $7,000 that was, you know, quote unquote, not charged. It got declined, mm-hmm. you know, for one reason or another. And by the time the Kickstarter was over, I only had like hundred and Fifty dollars, which is like amazing. Wow. I know it's, it's the, it was like really you know a really good thing had had turned over, but had that been a bigger number, BackerKit would have been working those you know, even the what the ones that failed, um, they get in they get imported into BackerKit and they continue to work them, and so there were a number of people who of that hundred and fifty came on afterwards because Backerkit was kind of doing their thing with it. And then the other thing that's really cool is is you always get people who say, oh, I just missed the Kickstarter. I'm so bummed. I really would have liked to have been part of it. And you say, well, you know what? You can because you can give them the the Backerkit information, and then they can go in and they can become a backer just as if the Kickstarter was still running. The only difference is Backerkit is, is using their credit card processing information rather than, um, Kickstarter's credit card processing information. And that's why I said like, yes, the Kickstarter ended at 73000 but we're up to $90,000 mm-hmm. um, because I've had so many funds coming in through Backerkit both from people who have joined the Kickstarter after the fact or people who have added on some of these add-ons after the fact.
0: How much do you pay for Backerkit? And how so, do you pay?
2: Yeah, so Backerkit is is somewhat like Kickstarter in the fact that you you pay a percentage of what it comes in, okay. They have a couple different programs. Um one is um, I gotta think about this. There's one that is like it's it's they take two percent of your Kickstarter money and then like one percent of all the funds that they bring in, or there's another one where they, it can be zero percent of the funds they bring in, but two percent of the Kickstarter money. So you can, so it's really hard to like figure out like what, which one's best. I chose the pro level and I calculated my fees out both ways. Mm -hmm. And I think there was only like, I think the total fees I paid to them was like a thousand dollars. And the difference between the two methods, once I calculated it up was like $150. So it wasn't like a big difference one way or another. You know, in the grand scheme of things, um, but but the bottom line is, if is if you think your your Kickstarter is going to be small, but your add-ons is going to be large. There's a, a plan that you would go into that would give you a little bit more savings. All
0: right, but it sounds like you paid them a certain amount of money, a, a percentage of revenue, whatever whatever that turned out to be, and you generated at least an additional seventeen thousand dollars from it in terms of in terms of revenue, and uh, a lot of uh, a big reduction of headaches for you. Yes,
2: yeah. So so yeah. So I I, I basically. I spent a thousand dollars to get seventeen from them. and yeah. then I got a whole because because also what they do is they also are integrated with fulfillment companies. Mm-hmm. So um, so once you have your backer kit, you can just press a button and all these fulfillment companies will send you quotes to say, you know we will ship your product for you for this amount of money. And they and they uh, do a really good job at kind of like making packing lists for every single backer. So, again, you're not kind of filling with all these spreadsheets and going, oh, so Susan wanted the book, and she got the poster, and she got the coffee mug. And, you know, you can kind of organize things a lot better so you know exactly what each person gets, and you can more accurately judge what the weight of the packages are going to be and how much the postage cost is. And, and you can even buy your postage directly from them. They have discounted postage. I, I happen to use something called uh, uh, stamps.com. Okay. So I'm already getting discounted postage through stamps.com, but if you weren't in stamps.com and you wanted to get discounted postage, you could get it through backer kit. So there's some other services of theirs that I'm not taking advantage of, but I could.
0: Okay, Just so this is not...
1: So she has all that taken care of, uh, and she's also the editor of my book that saves her time because she has a lot of other things I need her to do.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Well, it it sounds like this is not the kind of situation like I might have envisioned where your house was filled with coffee cups and posters and bookmarks and 5,000 hardcover books. This is all somewhere else.
2: Yeah. The the books are in – one of the things the backer kit is is funding is, is warehousing space. Um, for the books because, uh, and those are going through, oh, and I didn't talk about the retailing chain, you talked about distribution. So there are mm-hmm. a number of, uh, of book distributors. Um, IPG is one that comes to, to mind, Independent Publishers Group. Um, Greenleaf is another Uh, Atlas Books, um, is a third. Um, there are all kinds of companies that act as wholesalers and distributors for books. And again, they have various fees associated with them. I'm actually doing something really unusual. And if this works out, um, Mike will be blogging about it and we'll tell more people about it. But there's this company called, um, I'm drawing a blank right now. <laughs> uh, book ma- mascot oh, books. Okay. Mascot books, and they're actually they're they're kind of niche. Well, they have two things. One is they have books that they've published themselves. This is you know uh, basically a husband and wife team that started out you know self publishing. A lot of us
1: around. Yeah,
2: <laughs> started out publishing and and they they made a bunch of books interesting enough about mascots. They, they have these children's books for mascots for all the different teams in baseball and football and so forth. And then because they were doing so well with that, they started acting as a resource for self-published authors because they already had the printers and they already had the distribution channels set up. So they would actually take in people's books and they would format them and edit them. and, and and it it was a little bit, a little bit vanity in the respect that the author obviously is paying for some of this, um, but they had kind of the the, the network in place. Mm-hmm. So with me, um, it's even a little bit more different, and it might be something they'll do more of in the in the future. Because for them, I don't want any of the editing. I don't want any of the cover design. I don't need their ISBNs. I don't need any of the the quote unquote publishing stuff because I already have that. But I do need their distribution network. So um, I'm going to be published. So I'm going to be having their their. We're going to be partnering with them. I'm going to be paying for the printing and the warehousing of the books, but I'm going to be using their distribution chain. And for that, I will give them a cut of each book sold. Um,
1: so and They're the ones who get us in the bookstores.
2: Yeah, and, right. and, and they already have the arrangements with all the bookstores and, and and so forth. So now whether those bookstores actually make the purchases – Right. I can't say yet, but right. based on the fact that Michael has other books already on the shelf, and this is a new book coming out from him, I think the chances are going to be be high. Um, and the bottom bottom line is is if I totally miscalculated, um, I can always sell the books through the Amazon Marketplace um, and through Amazon uh, Fulfillment Center, um, and I'm getting the printing done at a substantially reduced cost because I'm able to do them in
0: volume. Mm-hmm okay is there any hope of or a plan for getting the books into libraries so yeah the that that distribution chain should get them in
2: libraries as well uh, this company and most all distribu almost every distribution company you'd approach already has arrangements with ingram which is the major distributor uh-huh. for bookstores and baker and taylor which is the major distributor for libraries again you know it's kind of a chicken and the egg situation. I mean, even when Mike was self-published through print on demand, his books actually are in a fair number of libraries because people, patrons would request them. And, you know, libraries, when they get requests from patrons, they, they usually will, will list the book. Um, he has much more with his traditionally published copies. Um, but again, it's, it's one of those things where you just can't, you, you know, you just can't Determine it. it's, it's usually, uh, more often than not, um, like like Mike's first book, Theft of Swords, that came out from Hachette, it happened to be, uh, w- Library Journal does um, end-of-the-year lists, and it was one of the top ten fantasy books of the year for Library Journal. So having a distinction like that gets it into a lot of libraries. Um
1: but but it's interesting because local local library we were just in there recently and I see that they have my traditionally published books, but aside from that, they also have my complete set of my original self published books that are still there. Yeah. Which yeah, is just amazing. Like I don't know how they got those, <laughs> but they have them it's it just it's fascinating to see the the different versions of my books that actually managed to, you know, saturate themselves into the library.
2: Yeah, so so even print on demand books, libraries will purchase them. Um, but, it's, again, it's a little bit of a chicken-and-egg situation.
0: Right. Okay. Now, before we wrap up on Kickstarter, just a couple things. We've talked about the money that you have raised through this. And uh, on, somewhere on, on your website or the Kickstarter website, uh, you were the third most funded uh, author-related project uh, worldwide and the second most backed U.S. fiction project of all time. That's pretty incredible.
2: yeah yeah it, it, we were third we were third uh, for, for, for fiction uh, okay. there, there are there are other nonfiction books that have raised more money but Kickstarter breaks down their their under publishing there's like under publishing you have like anthologies, you have fiction, you have nonfiction, a whole bunch of different categories. but in the publishing category yeah it was uh, it was third. And in its day, Hollow World, our first Kickstarter, came in at number eight. Um, now that was several years ago, and we and a whole bunch of other people bumped it down. It's now around twenty. Um, <laughs> Still pretty and we'll good. We'll see how long we we stay at three, but but uh, yeah, three is pretty good. Well, All right, I was and happy and,
0: with that. and just to be a hundred percent clear here for for mm-hmm. people who are maybe listening uh, while they're doing something else and not really thinking while they're listening, um, you've raised $90,000 for this. That uh-huh. doesn't mean... That you've generated ninety thousand dollars worth of profit. There are all kinds of costs associated with this: printing for that's the books, correct. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there it, there there's going to be someone out there who thinks, "Wow, they made ninety thousand dollars." That's not true. But no,
1: we made five dollars
0: <laughs> and no, got so, a day so, at so the, the spa. Printing
2: alone is costing me twenty-two thousand mm-hmm. dollars, right? So that I mean, that's that's coming right off the top.
0: Yes, and there, uh, there and are all these other things, and the fees, yeah, and, and the, the coffee cup costs, and yeah, the T-shirts posters. and the coffee cups. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yep. All right. I just wanted to to clarify that now exactly. p- michael you wrote a, a a really nice blog post um from a conference that you had been to or based on a conference that you had been to uh sort of one of those you know you will have made it as an author when this kind of thing happens can you share that story with listeners
1: <laughs> well, I, I should have reread it before the show <laughs> um well for the very History. See, Robin once told me, he says, you have to make a blog post, or a blog site, and I have to do blog posts on it. And I had no idea what to write, and I just assumed no one would ever read them. I'm actually surprised you read it today. Um, but one of the things I did very early on was trying to discuss, because I had seen many times on the internet, you always have these people saying, you know, well, when can I call myself a writer? When can I call myself, you know, an author? Uh, because you know, if I write every day, doesn't that make me a writer? And they're very contentious. They have all these arguments and debates. And so I did a series of... Uh... Uh-oh. Yeah, Uh-oh. I know. Are this... you still
0: there? You, haven't, you <laughs> haven't been whisked away to another uh, dimension, have you? Special effects.
1: <laughs> so what we did was I had a series of blog posts where I would try and bring up what I thought was, you know, mile posts and when I was successful and when I wasn't successful and how you knew these things.
2: Well, and, and let me interject it here for a moment because when... When Michael started writing his books and we first got published by the small press, I was working on the promotional aspects. And I said to Michael, "I said, well, what do I have to do for you to consider this a success? You know, how many books do I need to sell?" And what did you say, Michael?
1: I actually forgot now.
2: He said fifty or or fifty. He said fifty books, but
1: but but it couldn't be to friends and family.
2: Fifty books (laughs) to people that he did not know, and that was our first benchmark.
1: Yeah, so we <laughs> she beat that, barely. <laughs> and then what happened was I, I started looking for other other things because uh, people couldn't figure out for a while why after having so much success in self-publishing, why I would go traditional. And there are certain things that I think all authors are looking for because everyone wants to at one point see their book sitting in a bookstore that, that's like part of being a real author. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, the point where, you know, it, it. As I explained in the blog post, you're talking about it. It's like when you're eight years old and you look at you know your older brother who has who can drive and you say, well, that's an adult. You know, I can't wait like it to be that old. But when you get to that age, you realize, well, you're really not an adult because your older sister she can drink and she you know is going to college and she's much more successful. But then when you get to that age, you realize you're still not an adult. And so it always seems that to me, what I determined and the answer to the question was, when are you a real author? The answer to that is always that one tier above where you're at right now <laughs> and because it's always that way whenever I look I'm like you know I'm still not what I would consider to be a real author because when I go to to cons and the one you're mentioning was, was Gen Con which was recently in Annapolis uh, whenever I go to a con and throughout the history of, of my career I would sit in a room of authors and we'd have like a mass uh, a mass signing and we'd all be sitting at the walls and I would be that that kid who's never picked for the team. I would sit there, and no one would ever come up to me. I'd have like one person, and they would stare at my nameplate and go, "Oh, I know who you are." And I'd be like, "Thank God." Like, <laughs> you know, and they say, oh, "You know, but I don't have any books for you to sign." But yeah, I know you. Like, well, thank you. At least I didn't have a complete washout. <laughs> So these were things that were depressing. So when I went to the recent con uh, at Gen Con, it was kind of neat because it was one of the few times that I actually had fans come up to me <laughs> and say, you know, I love your work. And to me, to first be a Identified for someone to actually see me and say, I know who you are, uh, and I don't think I was wearing a name tag. <laughs> there, they, I don't know they could tell that. So they actually knew who I was, and they saw me there. And and in one instance, I was on a panel for, I think it was like world building, and these people are clearly not writers. They didn't come there necessarily to learn how to do r- world building. They actually came there because they knew I'd be on the panel. And that was fascinating. And I had two separate people who came there just to see me, and I, that was
2: fantastic. There, there, was, there was this... Uh... We were between panels and we were we we're sitting in the lobby of the hotel that's near the convention center and we're just sitting there and it's a kind of a, a couch, and there were a couple of tables, a couple of chairs around a table. And these two people walked up, and they said, "Do you do you mind if we join you?" And that's fairly common at the conventions because they're crowded, and you know you don't want to kind of monopolize the whole thing. And we said, "Oh yeah, sure, you know, sit down." And we just thought there were people coming for the chairs. Yeah. And then they said, <laughs> and then they said something like, "You know, uh, well, you know, we we love your work," and and we're like,
1: "You know, who you, I- you know, you
2: know, yes." <laughs> And, uh, and
1: they was, said, yeah, you're Patrick Rothfuss. <laughs>
2: and, and, and then, uh, you know, and so it was just, it was stuff like that, you know, that we're surprised that when when people actually were sitting down because of him. And it was really funny because we were going out to dinner with another author later on that evening and, and um, we hadn't quite coordinated the times. So um, Mike was in one panel talking to a couple of, people who had come up to him afterwards um and you know mike was like amazed that they had recognized him and i had actually gone over to this other room because i wanted to catch the author who was going to have a panel there for the next session to say we're going to go to the restaurant ahead of time we'll meet you there come meet us and so while i'm standing in this room this this woman looked at at me and i was wearing a a a t-shirt that said rayera on it which is michael's series, and. she says, "Oh, I just love him. I'm going to be stalking him, right? You know, f- later on this con." <laughs> and the first thing I thought of was, "Well, she didn't. She doesn't understand actually who this T-shirt is associated with." it. And I said, "I said Michael J. Sullivan." She says, "She says, yeah, yeah. Of course, Michael J. Sullivan." It's like. I was like, oh, okay, I thought you might have confused him with someone else. And I said, well, you know, I happen to be his wife, and she's like, you are Robin? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, oh, i got to give you a hug, you know, and stuff. And so it, it was just, it was kind of exciting and fun.
1: So most people who are, you know, readers, they, they when you see an author's book in a bookstore, and they there are more than one there, and... They, they they may have seen them or come across them on the internet, they have this assumption that you are this very famous successful person and of course everyone knows who you are and of course you get tons and tons of email and of course you get you know all these people coming up to you constantly and they're so apologetic and the one fellow who came up to me and we talked for about 5 minutes or 10 minutes I think it was and he says to me, he's like, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and I thought to myself, you know anyone could be in this room. You could have heads of state and geniuses and only one I'd be interested in is is that person because they know who I am and they like what I write. I mean, and that's all I really was interested in. And they don't seem to realize that I would much rather talk to someone who, you know, is a fan of my work than just about anyone else there. Uh, So it was just fascinating that people are so, I mean, as a writer, and I I live in a little room and I write Mm -hmm. and I type on a computer. I don't, You know, I'm not famous. I'm not uh, someone who goes to big parties or anything. I mean, no one knows who I am, I assume. And so it's just fascinating when people actually come up and go, oh, we love your work, as if, you know, of course everyone does. I'm like, no, really hardly anyone ever does. (laughs) So it's just fun. So the the blog post was just basically me saying thank you to those individuals at the Gen Con who who had – you know, let me know that they really liked what I wrote and that just made me feel good for the first time. And it was one of those things that showed me that maybe I'm making some headway and I'm finally getting to a point in my career where I could kind of start to think of myself as being a quote unquote real author
0: and there's a lot of really good stuff on your blog and I would recommend that people read not only your blog and i'll have to I'll ask you to give the URL because it's so complicated that i I can't remember it but you write you write in, in a lot of different places and you write prolifically about publishing and the author business so people who are interested in what this podcast is all about should be following you on on Twitter where you'll post things that that you've written and in all of these other other places that you write, and I know that you and Robin will from time to time do courses. You did one a week or so ago for Writer's Digest. So where can people keep up with everything that that you guys are doing?
1: Well, luckily, I think some of those are are auto. Like, if if I were to post on my blog, it automatically gets posted. So it's not like I'm doing every single one of those. Mm -hmm. I'm not that omniscient. But uh, go ahead, Robin. Go ahead. You you, you know the list.
2: Yeah. So uh, although right now it has been a very busy time, um, for Michael because, uh, he just got done with a series that got sold store to Del Rey. And, uh, he was he it, he's he writes very unusually in the fact that he writes all the books of a series before he seeks publishing on. You know, any of them. I
0: read that in the blog post, and I thought that can't possibly be right. You know, uh, yeah, it, I just finished is. writing this six it's, book series that I sold. I'm like, what?
2: It's crazy! It's crazy, and and the fact is, he won't let me try to sell them like early. Um, I don't even let her read them. <laughs> yeah, I can't even read them until until they're done. So like like and the problem with with the series that we just sold to Del Rey when Mike first started writing the series it was a trilogy and then somewhere along the lines it turned into four books and now he's finally done he finally finished it in April or May
1: May yes, eight, eight, yeah late April
2: late April um and it's and it's five books so it's like done now but he was uh you know he was uh he's been writing those pretty Back to you know back to back for the last two and a half years, and then because of a um, because of a non compete in that particular contract, meant that we had to get out this Ryera Death of Dual Gath book that we kickstarted by the end of the year. So Mike essentially has six written books <laughs> that are not published yet. They're all just waiting to be
0: published. I mean that's. Kind of crazy. Yeah, not like the rest of us who have just written six books and don't have them published yet. These these are six books that are actually going to be published.
2: Yes, they're <laughs> they're going to be published. They're already under contract and everything. So the bottom line is, he's been really busy and he slacked off on some some things. And and it's summertime. Hey, hey. and it's summertime. <laughs> but this is where you can usually find really good stuff. Uh, Amazing Stories magazine. He's a contributing editor for there, um, and so he has books on. He has articles on. You know, uh, contracts and working with agents and working with editors and uh, uh, self-publishing versus traditional publishing—all of that
1: type of stuff. I love how both of you know more about what I write than I do. <laughs> so
2: that's uh, amazing. Stories is is where those posts go. Um, he also has a subreddit, a sub a sub on Reddit called Write. To publish, that's W R I T E the number two, and then publish P U B L I S H, and that's all about the business of writing. So again, there'll be stuff on there about marketing your books. Um, There'll be stuff on there about how to format an ebook, how to get, you know, how to choose an editor, things of that nature, and and many times. One is kind of a a companion to the other. So, like, one might just reference, you know, go over and look at amazing stories. Um, And that's what Mike was talking about as far as automatically. Mm -hmm. And then there's the stuff he writes on his blog about writing. And those are generally... They fall into two categories. One is actually on the art of writing. And if you look on the right-hand side of his blog, there's, I think, you got about 32, 33 different articles about, like,
1: point of view. Yeah, yeah. With that, see, as I told you, she told me I had to write blog posts, but I didn't know what to write on. So I was... (laughs) writing all kinds of things, and a lot of them were how-to. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think some of my, my early essays in that blog uh, site was actually very good, but I don't think anyone's going back to read them. But some of them are great. <laughs> yeah,
2: and that's on his blog called, uh, this is the name of his series. It's Ryera, R-I-Y-R-I-A, six A six six letters. Um, so there's a, a bunch of those how-to's on there. And then uh, from time to time on his on that blog, I'll do a guest post on, you know, like contracts or something like that.
1: Um, so there'll, there'll yeah, be some information a contributor on those. to anything that has lots of numbers.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then whenever anyone, you know, asks us to, uh, like he, there was a, Mike's, does a lot of conferences. He was, he was a guest speaker at the writer's digest annual conference last year. Uh, he was a, you know, panelist at Gen Con. He's been at, a number of the conventions around, so he does a lot of those. The problem with those is you have to be there to see them, and so we're going to try and do a lot more of the the video conferencing we did, like for Writers Digest, mm-hmm. um, and we'll probably post them out on YouTube for free, and people can get them from there.
0: Okay, and again, you're you're going to work up a a series or a post or something on how to do Kickstarter, basically. Yeah,
2: it's it's going to be an ebook essentially, okay. and. Um, And I'll I'll send you the link to it. What I did is I I, I made up a little survey where people can give me their name and address. And Mm -hmm. then once I get it published, I'll just
0: send them all copies to it. Perfect. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been terrific. Okay, well, thanks for having us. Yeah, I hope it was uh, worth your time. It absolutely was.